All right, so we're diving in now to Daniel chapter 9. Um, and, and this is one of the most famous passages on uh, biblical confession that, that we have in the Bible. I mean, Martin Bootser, the reformer, uh, uh, John Calvin, the reformer, they actually created their confessions of prayer. That this is, that, like, this is how we do it based on Daniel chapter 9. And it's really interesting, though, to me to see how our theology of preaching actually plays out, uh, because I planned that in 2019 that we would be in Daniel in the summer of 2020, not having any idea the the national environment that we would be in. I, I'm a people pleaser at heart. If it was just up to me to pick passages, this isn't one that I'm going to pick because as you see, the majority, the lion's share of the confessing that Daniel is doing is on behalf of his forefathers. He's confessing the sin of his forefathers. So you can see in our current environment, this is, uh, I might naturally see it as unnecessarily controversial, uh, but God um, has something else for this church. What it is, I've yet to know. Maybe he has a specific word on us and our repentance. Maybe he's saying that Jim needs to be selling insurance in a month's time. We'll see. I hope it's the former, not the latter. But the whole realm of, of confession uh, is something that we're just not good at as people. I mean, we see it from the U.S. Capitol all the way down to the school schoolyard playgrounds. Uh, more than once when I've asked one of my kids to confess their sin and repent uh, of something to another sibling, I will get something like, well, I'm sorry that you just don't know how to follow instruction. Or I'm sorry that you're just not as smart as I am. Uh, I, I mean, often the whole realm of, of confession of guilt is really just another way of saying, I'm sorry that I got caught. I, I mean, I've heard notable figures say, I'm sorry if my actions hurt somebody. All right. That's, that's not owning our, our guilt. Uh, we, we've seen that, that really using confession to, uh, blame shift has become, uh, sadly an art form in many of our political spheres. Uh, one notable, um, uh, confession from politicians said, I'm sorry that the current political environment is so divisive that I had to lower myself to this level of, conf- of conduct. Uh, it's just shifting the blame. It's everybody else's fault that I, I had to do this. Or apologizing uh, for the outcome, not your contribu- contribution to it. So there was another, again, I'm not going to name names, but a, a, a notable person in the media who had, uh, who had done a particularly gross kind of abuse. And this person said, I'm sorry for the people my actions have hurt. I mean, he's not owning anything here. He's just saying that he's sorry that they hurt people. He wasn't apologizing, confessing, confessing his actions. But in Daniel chapter 9, we see biblical confession. Confession that liberates our heart, that edifies those around us, and that demonstrates the power and the glory and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to do. I just want to make, I want to, I want to look at Daniel chapter 9 and help us understand a little bit more of what a biblical confession of sin looks like. So the first question, I'm really just going to answer two. The first one is why we confess our sins. All right, so we, we have to look at the context here. In the beginning of Daniel, Daniel's having a quiet time in Jeremiah. So we, it's worth asking ourselves, when was the last time I had a quiet time in the Old Testament? Uh, and he realizes from Jeremiah's prophecy 
that the ordained time of the Israelite exile, it, it's limited and, it, and it's coming to a close. It, this, it hits him and he, in the context, that, that's the context for his confession. And as we read, and if you know your, your Old Testament, um, God has said in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28 that there are consequences for rebelling against God. And those consequences are often uh, being cast out in some way. So Adam and Eve rebelled and they were cast out. Uh, the Israelites rebelled and they were cast out of the promised land. And this is, this is a, a theme that continues all the way into the New Testament. When you see Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a man who is, is unrepentant about particularly grotesque sin. And what are Paul's words? Cast this one out. He literally says, hand him over to Satan. But if you know the heart of God from Eden all the way through the New Testament, the, the intent is not punitive, it's purifying. There's something about being cast out that calls your heart home. That's what God is wanting to do in, in the context of Daniel. That's what he wants to do in church plus discipline. He wants our hearts. And you can see that this is Daniel's heart too, because Daniel isn't just concerned about getting the land back. You can see Daniel's heart and his hope is that the hearts of his people will come home. Not just, not just that our bodies would be back in the promised land, but that the hearts would be called home. And I, I think about sin in our culture because sin is, our sin is the reason we have to confess. That, that's, that's the why. And we just see the way that, that sin is usually either mocked or just covered up. Mocked or muted. There you go. I got two M words on the spot. Mocked, that wasn't even in the notes. That's the Baptist preacher in me. All right, mocked or muted. So, I mean, you hear people talk about, uh, oh, my my secret little sin, my sinful little pleasure, and talking about chocolates or whiskey or something. Uh, but then if I actually engage somebody, you know, if I were to ask my, my waitress, tell me your thoughts on sin. I mean, that would get super awkward, super fast, because our culture doesn't want to talk about sin. We, we want to mute it. But in Daniel, we see an example of a third way. He's not mocking sin and he's not muting sin. What Daniel's doing is engaging it. Augustine wrote um, a long time ago, he wrote about a memory he had when he was a kid. He and his friends snuck into a pear orchard. A pear orchard. You're shaking your head. You know the story. Yeah. So he snuck into a, they snuck into a pear orchard. And they stole pears. And, and reflecting on it much later, he said, I don't even know. I mean, it's odd that I would even do it. I wasn't hungry and I don't even like pears. But the reason I did it and the reason I wanted to do it is because I was told that I couldn't. And, he, and he, his case is that's our plight. That's our sin. We, we do not want to be told what to do. We want to do what we want to do. And you know, it's, it's so deep in us that... You know, we, we, we acknowledge that God has given us an ethical system that's supposed to uphold human flourishing, yet we so fiercely don't want to do what we're told that we're supposed to do that we would engage outside of that ethical system in, in a new system that actually breaks down human flourishing. So confessing our sin is at the core of what makes Christians different from every other group of people. I mean, so all of us are sinners, right? All of us are sinners. What makes us different isn't our church attendance. It isn't our morality. It isn't how much Bible we know. Is that we confess our sins and run to Jesus. 
So everyone's a sinner. We're just this unique subset of sinners called repentant sinners. That, that's what Christians are. We go to Jesus with a deep sense that we are flawed at our core and that our only hope is him. And, you know, sometimes we can think that our sin is the bad decisions that we make. But our sin is actually the underlying reason that we make all these bad decisions in, in the first place. It's not that we have sinned, so we run to Jesus. It's that we've got this terminal spiritual condition called sin. And we don't come by it passively. You know, We don't just like catch it like a disease. We have willingly taken on this terminal spiritual condition. And the end result, if that is not dealt with, is the ultimate form of casting out. Where we will be sent eternally to what Jesus calls the place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the whole biblical narrative is calling his people home. So we confess our, our sin. And, and as we do that, we have to remember that even though our sin has hurt other people and our sin greatly affects those closest to us, the party that is most affected is God. The party that is most offended is God. And I think that's what, what Daniel is alluding at in, in, or getting right to the heart of, he's not alluding, in verse 17, he's giving this confession. He says, this is for your own namesake, God. This is about your glory and your righteousness. And as we'll see, your grace, all of this is on display when your people repent and turn back to you. This isn't about the land. This is about your glory and calling your people home. So that's why we confess. Uh, then the, the other thing I want to do is look at what this looks like. And here's the tricky part. Because right off the bat, from verse 3 all the way to verse 19, Daniel's confessing corporate sin. He's confessing the sin of his forefathers. That's why he says, we have sinned. We have not listened. To us be open shame. And then there are some things that he's not even, he, he's not even a part of. He, he switches at one point and repents of their treachery referring to the forefathers who disobeyed and rebelled, causing Israel to be sent out. So you can see how this gets controversial in our present climate. And, and I, I don't want to be overly controversial, but I want to be biblically faithful. And so I do want to, to understand how we, you know, in our culture where there are calls to repent for lots of, lots of issues of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, we as Christians, we need, and clearly there's biblical precedent here. We need to know how we apply this and where we draw lines because there, there are lines to be drawn. So first thought on Daniel 9, how do, how can we apply when, let me say that, when do we apply, um, what Daniel's doing to our own confessional life? And the first, the first thought is, is there a covenantal link? between me and, and the people I'm, I'm confessing for. So there's a clear covenantal link between Daniel and, and his forefathers. They're, they're all a part of the same covenant people. Um, probably many of you remember, not in the too distant past, not, not in the distant past, both the PCA, the, the Presbyterian Church of America, and the Southern Baptist Convention, they repented of their organization's contribution to slavery. It was controversial, but I'm sympathetic to that because there is a direct covenantal link between the leaders of those organizations now and the leaders who, in a well-documented way, supported and defended slavery. So I personally feel like, okay, that's, that's an okay use of Daniel chapter 9. 
Um, but that's, that's not the only kind, like denominational covenantalism isn't the only kind of covenant, uh, relationship. Of course, a marriage is a covenantal relationship. Even having, having children is a type of covenantal relationship. Uh, and, and if, if my child offended you in some way, I would feel like it is my role to come and apologize. If not for my own bad parenting, just for that my child is, is, has offended you in some way. I can remember really well in seventh grade, there was a girl sitting in front of me who was boasting about the fact that she had never had a haircut in her life. So I sat behind her and I gave her her first haircut. (laughs) And I remember really well, she's a girl out there, maybe about that age. All right. Uh, That's how my kids responded. I'm sorry to call you out. I feel like I can call people out in a smaller environment. Um, But I remember my mom profusely uh, apologizing on my behalf later that day on the phone. And I saw her, I walked in and, and she was apologizing. What's going on? And she goes, <laughs> but, but the covenantal line, it doesn't just go down, it goes up. So my grandfather, who I, I loved my grandfather and he was a really good grandfather to me. He had lots of other flaws, but he was a good grandfather to me. And he was renowned in Orlando as a racist. I mean, just, just, I mean, even, even your run of the mill racist would look at my grandfather and say, now that's a racist. <laughs> and I, my, my aunts and uncles and mom, they used to always say that my grandfather made Archie Bunker look like a liberal. <laughs> and and all, the, the interns this week, as we were talking about the sermon, none of them knew who Archie Bunker was. So if you don't know Archie Bunker, you need to Google that. This is a part of American history here. Um, but he, he was terribly racist. And I can remember going to the Domino's Pizza on Orange Avenue back in the day. I was about 10. And the poor woman who was serving us was an African-American. And he just treated her like dirt. And I remember, I don't know if he went to the bathroom or to get drinks or what. But I, when he left, I apologized to that poor woman that my grandfather was such a racist jerk. I didn't, I didn't offend her, but because of the link to my grandfather, I felt like I needed to apologize in some way because there is a type of covenantal link between us. So with that, you know, you have some calls of people for, let's say, all white people to repent of all actions that white people have done. Well, I, I, that, that would be taking it too far. You know, I, I, I'm not covenantally linked to everybody who has the same color of skin that I do. And in the same way, I'm not covenantally linked even to everyone who would carry the label Christian. So I don't feel like I personally need to uh, apologize for things like the Crusades. I don't, I don't think the covenantal link is there. Um, but I've danced around one glaring issue. And, and before I get into it, um, I, I don't know, I, I went back this week and I listened to a lot of sermons on Daniel 9 by American pastors and I, I could not find one that didn't address the elephant in the room when it came to Daniel chapter 9. What do we do with American racism and slavery? So I, I'm not like taking this cultural moment to step out of the text. I could not find a pastor who didn't address this in 20th and 21st century American culture. So, getting back to my notes, um, I am not going to tell you how you have to process this this morning. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I am going to share with you how I process this. Um, I, I am directly linked to slavery. My, my family were slaveholders. We, uh, we have a document where I believe it's my third great-grandfather in his will to my second great-grandfather was handing over slaves 
I remember one of them was named Bessie. And I wondered, I wish I could know her story. What was Bessie like? That's probably the only documentation that exists of her anywhere now. Maybe I'll know in heaven. But I recognize that, you know, going past my grandfather, we get to people um, who were slaveholders, contributed to that system. And I would recognize that I even financially benefit even today because of the, the way that accumulated wealth is passed down through the generations and the way that, that, that slavery benefited that. So even though I've never owned a slave, uh, I do feel like it is good, right, and biblical for me to confess that sin of my ancestors. But I would say, even if I could not link myself to slave owners, I am an American. And if you've never heard me say this before, I love being an American. I am so thankful. I, I love, I really do love going into another country and putting my passport down. You know, there, there, but there's a link there. Like I'm a part of this, this, this covenantalish link of, of being a part of the same group of people. And if I'm going to accept the benefits that comes with that people, I need to be willing to accept the cost or the, so, some of the, the culture as well. I need to own that, that I'm, I'm a part of it. Um, and so that for me personally, I would say that is good, right, reasonable, and biblical to repent of the sin of slavery and the systems of, of racism that have benefited people who have the same color of skin that I do. Okay. I'm not saying you have to come to the same view. That's how I process this. Um, but what I don't want to ignore is how blessed I feel like I am in this. Because when I can repent of the sins of my forefathers, it allows me to be even more proud to be an American. It allows me to look over the, the, the serious blind spots of my grandfather and love him even more. It allows my heart uh, to appreciate more what is to be appreciated about my history. Because once I've confessed that, I don't have to be associated with it in the same kind of way. And in a, in, in it has a uniting, not a divisive uh, influence, because in that I feel closer to my brothers and sisters of color. And so there, there's a real benefit, I think, to, to repenting of the sins of the forefathers. I think that's what Daniel's experiencing here. But even if you don't come to the same conclusion, I want you to know that you should care. That, 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 that I, can, I can camp out on. Our hearts should break over injustices and sins in the world. And uh, I, I got his permission to tell the story, but one of our older elders, before COVID hit, uh, he and his wife went and saw the movie um, Just Mercy. And, I, it, it, and it's, a, it's a true story. It's a legal drama where a defense attorney, attorney went down to Alabama um, and he found this, somehow found this man uh, is a black man in jail for the murder of a white woman in 1986. And he began to see all the lies people were saying to, to be able to make these charges happen. And so he was falsely accused, falsely detained. And when the movie ended, uh, this elder turned around and there were three, uh, three black people sitting behind him. And without saying a word, he just went and he hugged them. He just hugged them. And, and he said, I am so sorry that this happened. And so even if you don't link yourself in a way that needs to apologize for it happening, our hearts should break with compassion in a way that would cause us to say, I'm so sorry that this happened. So we've talked about the covenantal link. We've talked about if we're accepting a benefit, then maybe we need to accept uh, the cost. But 
The third thing we need to address is does your confession, does it actually cost you anything? Does it cost you anything? If you're standing up and confessing something and there's no lump in your throat, there's no hesitation in your soul, then maybe what you're doing is not actually biblical confession. C.S. Lewis had to deal with this when he, uh, uh, in 1940, um, there was a growing sentiment in England that England needed to repent of their actions in World War I that contributed to the rise of Hitler. And so C.S. Lewis uh, addressing his article is called The Dangers of National Repentance. And this is what he wrote, a slightly scaled down version. Um, when a man over 40, who likely fought in World War I, tries to repent for the sins of England, he is attempting something very costly. He was brought up to a certain patriotic, sen- uh, here, sorry, he was brought up to certain patriotic sentiments, which cannot be killed without a struggle. But an educated man in his 20s usually has no such sentiment to kill. What is certain is that in asking such people to forgive the Germans and the Russians and to open their eyes to the sins of England, you are asking them, that is the the young 20s, you're asking them not to kill, but to indulge their ruling passion. So if you're standing up to confess the sins of those who come before you, but there's no inward struggle, there's no cost, you probably should sit down. Probably, when that happens, we need to mine our hearts and see if we're more virtue signaling than we actually are confessing. So if there's a benefit, we need to take the cost. But if there's no cost, we need to mine our hearts to see what it is we're really doing. Um, Confession is hard. It's meant to be hard. If it's not hard, there's something going on uh, in your soul when we verbally confess the ways we have wronged God. Uh, I I have another story from another elder that I also asked permission. I would never tell a story of anybody without permission. But um, this Monday, Monday of this week, I emailed the elders kind of getting their advice. Like, okay, this is a touchy thing. This is corporate repentance. If you have any thoughts, uh, I'd welcome them. And specifically, you know, do you think there's anything that we corporately have to confess? Um, and and in God's providence, I had breakfast already scheduled Tuesday with this elder. And he said, Jim, that, that email was really good for me. Because when I, when I received that, that email, is there anything to repent for? There was resistance in my soul. And I had, to, I had to ask God, when did my heart become hard enough that when pastor asks me if I have anything to repent of, that I immediately resent it, that I resist it. And in that moment, I was just, I was so honored to be able to serve as an elder with that man because he had such emotional awareness. He had such humility in his heart. Uh, and, and I think it's a great model of confession is hard for everyone, <laughs> even the elders of this church. But when we do it right, it's freeing. It's liberating. So we, we see in this passage, we, we, it's, we see this confession to God. It's easily missed. This is confession to others as well. It was written down. Like we're, he's, all of us are seeing it. So there's confession to God. There's confession to others. Um, and when this happens, three very important things happen in our hearts. And this is, I'll, I'll finish with these three things. First, confession stings. It's meant to sting. Even as the words are coming out of your mouth, it, it's supposed to sting. It should sting. 
It is, confession, Christian confession, it isn't a way of ignoring our sins or covering over our sins. It's, it's this Daniel-like way of dealing with our sins, of getting it in the open. So it's supposed to sting. Second, we feel the gospel when we confess. Confession is designed by God to reinforce the way that he's redeeming humanity. That, that's what it is. So when we, so we have God and people in this text. So when we go to God and confess our sins, he uses his, by the power of his spirit and, uh, and the power of his word, he reinforces in our hearts Jesus's final words. It is finished. It's done. We're reminded of that when we confess. We're reminded when we confess of Paul's words to the Romans. There is now no condemnation in for those in Christ Jesus. So as a confession becomes a way of experiencing the gospel, where every time we confess and we feel that sting, we're reminded Jesus died even for that. We aren't just getting off the hook. We're being washed clean. And, and it happens, again, we've talked about confession to God. It happens when we do it with other people. I have had the blessing of being able to sit down with, with couples uh, and, and in some cases where one spouse has greatly offended the other spouse, just in, in, the, in the worst ways you can imagine. And I've had the privilege of seeing the offended after there is a real confession, a genuine confession, sometimes through tears, through great emotions, through anger. I've, I've been able to see the offended say, I forgive you. I mean, there's that's experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, I mean, it wasn't like Jesus just, just let us off the hook. It's through the tears and the emotion, the agony of the cross and his commitment and his love to his people that he looks at us and says, I forgive you. And so when, when that happens between relationships, we're experiencing the gospel. That's the way that God has designed for his plan of redemption for humanity to be experienced on a regular basis in our sin. And then third and last, we get Jesus. There, there's some places in Christianity where, where it's, it feels like, and I don't think they mean to say this, but it feels like confession is the spiritual uh, climax of Christianity. When c- confession of sin and forgiveness of sin, it's just the entry point. <laughs> the climax is that we get an eternity with Jesus. And I think this is what Gabriel in the last part of our passage is communicating to Daniel. So when Daniel was still confessing his sin in that moment, Gabriel comes, same Gabriel that we've already seen. And he, and he tells Daniel, I have come to give you, uh, understanding and insight. And so we see that this understanding and insight, there, there are basically two pieces to it. Uh, and the first is in verse 23. Daniel says, at the beginning of, or sorry, Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I mean, just let that sit on you for a minute. You are greatly loved. So he, he's not saying you've been forgiven your sin. He's saying you are greatly loved. There's something much more significant than just getting off the hook here going on. And because God greatly loves his people, Gabriel follows this with a promise. Verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the, this, the, sorry, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. 
So if you spend any time around the Bible, you know this, like, this is one of the most debated things. What, what are these 77s? Some of your Bibles might say 70 weeks. That word weeks is a, is an interpretation. That's not in the original Hebrew. It's 77s. Um, some have, have said, well, it's, it, they, they put weeks, but really it represents years. And, you know, I don't fall into those camps. I have dear friends who do, but if you, if it's 70 literal weeks, that doesn't really get us anywhere. Even if it's seven sets of 70 and you turn it into years, I still don't think that it gets you to, to a helpful place in redemption history that really connects with what I, what it's, what we know Gabriel's trying to say. What I think, um, is that in, as I've said, in this kind of apocalyptic literature, the numbers are sometimes figurative. And if you look at this figuratively, it's actually more powerful than any kind of literal understa- understanding. So what I think the 70 is pointing to is this Sabbath rest pattern. So in Hebrew culture, you knew that, you know, that one day out of seven, they rested. Then one year out of seven, they were supposed to rest. They were supposed to let the land rest and whatever happened to grow up, the the poor could take it. They were uh, supposed to let their slaves, what we might call indentured servants, they were set free after seven years. And then when there had been seven sets of those seven year periods, you had like this super Sabbath. It's called the year of Jubilee, every 49 years where you're supposed to do all those same things. But now all the land that maybe your family had lost or had to sell away, you get back. So there's this massive, massive rest when there are uh, seven sets of these sevens, okay? And what Daniel, I think, is clearly saying is what's coming to you is 10 times that, 10 Jubilee, 10 that, that's what this would play out, 10 jubilees. And, and we know the word 10 is highly symbolic in Hebrew culture. It means completeness and fulfillment. And, and it just that, that makes a lot of sense. What's coming to you, Daniel, is, is greater than 10 jubilees. It's full, it's complete. And what, what Gabriel is prophesying is the coming of Jesus Christ and everything that Jesus will do to redeem humanity that we will experience if if a year of jubilee is a super sabbath we'll have this super duper sabbath where we will for eternity be able to rest with Jesus Christ apart from our sin and in his glory with no no limitation in any kind of way that's a pretty great promise because you are greatly loved by God and interestingly enough, one of the main reasons that, that we're told Israel is cast out is because they weren't practicing this rest. They, they were guilty of not doing the things that God wanted them to do. So for me, it's clear what, what Gabriel's saying. And it's clear, it, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a great final exclamation mark on what confession is, because confession isn't an end to itself. It's a door through which we get Jesus. It is a God-ordained door to get Jesus, to experience Jesus, to communicate his love through our own confession. And so what I want to do, now that we're we're finished with this time, I want to be faithful to this text, and I want to have a time of confession. I'll make it silent and private, um, I feel like we, our hearts would need more warning if I was going <laughs> to do anything public. But, but I want us to sit for a moment and ask ourselves, both personally and corporately, again, however you want to apply corporately to your life, what do I need to confess? 
So we're going to do that, and then I'll finish us in prayer before our last song. God, we, as a group, we are sinners, all of us. We are so thankful for the work that you do in our hearts to help us to see this, to help us confess this, and we're thankful for the power of those words because of the way you have pursued us in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would now, as we sing, be able to celebrate all the more because we have confessed that we would uh, that we would celebrate you and your faithfulness and all of the good gifts in our life, even family members with flaws. God, we just we we thank you that we can celebrate your grace through the confession of sin. We thank.